to the Voice of HK podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Julie Bajik-Smith, and in over a decade, I have supported hundreds of older adults to improve their well-being in late life. This podcast offers an authentic insight into aged care, practical tips, and all the inspiration to keep you going. I truly believe that every older person needs to feel heard, loved, and understood. And it is my mission to halve the depression rates in Australian aged care facilities by 2022. excited to speak with a special guest today. Many of you have probably come across her social media posts and her name over the years, Jo Muirhead. She certainly helped me a lot in my my work and I'm really excited to have her join today. Jo is a rehab consultant and she is the leader of Purple & Co. Welcome Jo. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction, Julie. That's okay. It's just like, like where, where do I start? You've got so many skills. You've got such experience. At the moment, you've got health challenges that you're going through. And I just think like you are an amazing woman. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. That's lovely <laughs> and a little bit overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, uh, I just think, you know, every time I've needed help and support with my work, I, I know that I've reached out to you and, you know, I've interviewed so many people in this podcast, but I wanted to speak with you and, and to learn a bit about, you know, who's, who's been your mentor and to tell me and the listeners a little bit about your great aunt and why she was so influential on you and your life. And then I wanted, you know, to talk a little bit about aged care and, and your views about what's been happening because I remember you being quite surprised about some of the stuff that I was you know, sharing with you that was happening in residential care. So let's get started at the beginning. Tell me a bit about your great aunt. So my, my great aunt, we, we re- lovingly refer to her as Gwenny. Her name was Gwen and um, she had ended up being such an incredibly influential woman in my life the older she got. Uh, I think I, as a younger person, I probably didn't understand the the wealth of information and the perspective that she could offer me. But certainly as we both got older, I found myself wanting to connect with her more, her her ability to look at the world through the lens of a 70-year-old and then an 80-year-old and a 90-year-old and be articulate and not judgmental. It helped me, I think, really grow in my understanding of how we have so much potential and of all of the advances that have been made. She kind of kept up with everything. She was pretty cool. And I miss her. I miss her terribly. She's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what was it about your great aunt that just, you know, really stood out for you? She never wanted to, so we have this kind of opinion that old people are grumpy or that older people are grumpy and that grumpiness like depression is a normal part of ageing, that there was this impression that, you know, they don't keep up with technology, they don't even appreciate technology, they don't even appreciate, you know, there's, there's a lot of judgment that we make about the opinions and attitudes that an older person might hold. Well, Gwenny flew in the face of all of that. She was 
one of the least judgmental people I have ever met. Now, when she she would talk to me uh, about, you know, some of the advances that she'd seen or the changes she'd seen in the world. Now, this is a woman that was born in 1924, okay? And she talked to me about how awesome it was to finally get an automatic washing machine. So when you think about historically what she's lived through and what she's experienced, she was talking about an automatic washing machine being like one of the best things in her life ever. But then she would go on to say she was the most supportive person to my uh, her nephew when he had a marriage breakdown and then I had a marriage breakdown and then she's had two great nieces come out in same-sex relationships. That sort of stuff wasn't generationally spoken about and a lot of that there was a lot of shame attached to that if, if that had happened in her lifetime but she had open arms and warm embraces and she was an amazing cook and you just knew you were going to get wrapped up in this an amazing you know sense of being loved but she would also poke the bruise like if she didn't like the way you were going on about something or if she thought that your attitude needed an adjustment she, she would tell you but she'd earned the trust and the, I guess she had a few runs on the board. It wasn't like her life was always easy or pleasant. But where she went, that's just not a nice thing to do, Joe. Or that's not an okay way to talk about the world, Joe. Or and she was really quick to jump on a lot of that sort of attitudinal stuff that I might have come up with. And what what happened? Like you know, towards the end of her life, did she stay in her home? Did she? No, she didn't. Her skin broke down very quickly, well, was it very quickly, towards the end, and her mobility became very poor. She became very, very small, and her family decided to help her move into assisted living. And, you know, unfortunately, she's got one of those stories where she moved into assisted living. It wasn't well received by everybody in the family. It, um, lots of judgment was made about that, and um, she didn't stay there very long. She, her, that's where her life ended. But in, in terms of the medical care that she needed, my personal opinion is that was the best place for her to be, but it wasn't my decision. I remember my very last time that I spent with her, I had always talked to her and her sister, who is my grandmother, about having a, a high tea somewhere. And my grandmother and Gwenny, the mobility was such a big problem that I had to take it to them. So I did. And it wasn't a super fancy thing. We, I just took in, you know, espresso coffee and some lovely little cakes and sweet things to share things. And we just laughed and talked. And I got them talking about what it was like when they were children and sisters. They were incredibly close as sisters. And it was just this beautiful experience where I almost got to, to relive their teenage years and their 20s with them up until the time that they got married. Now, the interesting thing is these two ladies married two brothers and then a double wedding so that that was they were really close they spoke to each other every day even and they lived about 500 meters away from each other in separate houses and it was just so lovely for me to be a part of that relationship in in that way in in a really special way that is so beautiful i was talking to this client not long ago and um 
her sister came to visit her at the nursing home. So this lady's like 95 and her 91 year old sister came along and she said, Oh yeah, we had a third sister too. She was a real bugger, you know, <laughs> but, but these two got on fine. And like, even now, you know, she comes, you know, at 91, she drives herself to the facility and she is like, come on, Beryl, get out of the bed. You know, <laughs> she gets around and it's just, it's, it's amazing to see that, you know, the bond over the decades, how it still like stays so strong and, how special that you had that with your, yeah. I do feel like I was really lucky to, to have been there and to help cultivate that and just be interested enough, interested enough to know what wanting to know. I mean, this is part of my history and my legacy and I, I don't have my mum anymore. So I was like, okay, I, I, there are some gaps I need filled here. <laughs> and, and if I don't ask you, I, I don't know where else I'm going to find this information. So, yeah, it was really special. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, in your line of work, I know that you supervise and mentor a lot of health professionals, but do you feel that, you know, we work with people from all walks of life, but, you know, what is happening with aged care? I mean, I know that, you know, you've helped me, but do many health professionals not work with this population? Oh, not, not, not as far as I can see. And I've been talking about this, you know, since I've known you, Julie, it's like, why aren't more people helping working in aged care? It's kind of like the generations of people who are growing. And for those of us in our 40s pushing 50, like that's, that's where we're headed. So if we're going to change the state of healthcare or residential care for or generational living in this country, then if we wait for government to make those changes, we're going to be waiting for a whole lot of time because it's a behemoth of a thing to get your head around. Yes, I know we need regulation. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be looking after people and we need regulation. But what I'm suggesting is that health professionals need to stand up and go, huh, there are people here who need my help. Why aren't we helping them? And making it easier. I remember talking to a clinical psychologist some time ago who wanted to work with this particular population, but to get to her rooms, you had to navigate stairs. No, oh, that's not going to work. <laughs> you and I, and I just said to her, it isn't going to work. It is, and she goes, what do you mean? <laughs> so even understanding the accessibility issues, um, she goes, oh, okay, so that means I need ground floor. And I said, well, hang on a minute, let's think about this logically. How are people going to get to you? And she was like, oh, I hadn't thought about it. Well, they could catch a bus. I'm like, oh, Wow. And it might sound like I'm being judgmental here, but I think we don't, I don't, and this is health professionals of all generations, by the way, we don't spend enough time thinking about how we make our services accessible to the people we want to help. It, there's too much focus on acute injury or acute illness and then you throw a whole heap of resources at something. Then we've got this, you know, oh, well, we'll come and help you when it's palliative. It's like, no, 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 no. Now, fortunately, that psychologist I was talking about went on to create an amazing service and really took what she could offer to people, similarly to how you've done it. Julie, that's one of the things I admire about you is you were the first person who I knew was actually inside these facilities going, it doesn't have to be this way. And I'm so proud of that. So proud that you did that. Thank you. Thank you. Look, I think it's taken, you know, like even though, yeah, no, I wouldn't have hired a room with steps. It takes a while to think how to engage this population because like just this morning I had a supervision session with mental health professionals who visit aged care homes and, you know, they said, well, you know, what is your advice about someone, who, you know, who moves in and what, 
And I think it's just, you know, the point of difference with aged care is that you, you can't work in isolation. Like you and I can go and see a psychologist and not tell anyone about it and get on with our lives. But for older people, we need to collaborate. We need to collaborate with service providers. We need to look at how we can do stuff holistically, you know. It's no good just popping into a nursing home for an hour and leaving. Like you actually have to help the older person be embedded and not isolated and not with, you know, like it's just, it really, you have to be creative in, in a way of how you do things. And I think that's similar to what you've done in rehab as well. It's like, how can I be creative and how can I be innovative? And, you know, I've, I've seen people in nursing homes quite young who are there because they've had a car accident or, you know, they were injured at work or something happened. And they moved into an aged care home with old people. Yeah, that we, we all know that that's not okay. <laughs> and I could get on my soapbox about that for a really long time. But um, yeah, let's, let's not do that. If we do have young people living in inappropriate accommodation, purely because there has been a lack of alternatives. And unfortunately, we don't have an unending budget for this stuff. So we are limited by financial resources, which is why it's so freaking important for people of my age and your age, Julie, to make sure we're planning for our future financially. Because we can't just go, the government will pay for that. The government will pay for that. Because chances are, it can't. (laughs) And I know that the government resources that were made available to my grandparents was different to what was made available to my parents. And right now, if I was to retire or get sick, I wouldn't have any of those resources. So, you know, that's not the answer. But coming back to your point uh, about health professionals working in aged care facilities, I think part of the issue there is that a person, a human being, who we often refer to as a patient or a client, has been taken out of their domestic context or their home context, which they could have been in for 80 years, and they've just been plonked into a new context, and they're struggling to know how to make sense of it. I don't care how well-adjusted they are. I have seen it, and, and I think this is a part of the reason why people quickly go to, they go to a nursing home to die. It's, no, they go to a nursing home and they're forgotten, or they don't receive the support in a way that they can use it to help them live their best life now. So um, I visited a hospital just this weekend. Now it's a purpose-built hospital in the Illawarra for older people who need medical care. It's not a living facility. It's not a residential facility. So my grandmother's in there at the moment. Now on the piece of paper it said that her name, what her name was, that's not the name she likes to go by. And then it had had, you know, here for falls assessment, fracture review, nowhere on this magical piece of paper that had three lines on it that the registered nurse got at handover, did it say anything about the fact that my grandmother's got fairly significant dementia? So they were throwing food, putting the food on the little table for her. Now, my grandmother doesn't understand why it's there. And that gave her a little cup of medicine, like the four tablets that she's supposed to take once a day. She doesn't understand why it's there. And she's so compliant that she smiles, she says hello to everyone, and she just says yes. So the nursing staff think that she's understanding when really she's just masking. So I'm sitting there talking to the registered nurse going, so this is the name she would prefer to be known by? And she's like, oh, really? And, you know, this food that's on the table here, it's not that she's not hungry. She doesn't know what to do with it. You see these water bottles here? She doesn't know that she's allowed to open them. And then she probably doesn't have the hand strength to open them. Mm, That would have been very eye-opening for her to, yeah. 
This episode is proudly brought to you by the Beyond Reluctant Move book, Practical Approach to Wellbeing in Residential Aged Care Facilities. Let's together beat the myth that depression and dementia are a normal part of ageing. Grab a copy today from wisecare.com.au. So, and then, then people like me as a consumer of health service, we get so angry, like that's poor care and that's disgusting and that shouldn't be happening and I wanted to go there. But then I thought, okay, as a health professional, we're always in a rush. We always want to provide the best clinical outcomes in the shortest space of time. We are always in a rush. That is the continuum of healthcare. I have not known, <laughs> I've had a lot of healthcare this year, I have not known to not feel rushed anywhere along this continuum. Uh, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges that aged care faces is how do we resource the care that people need in a way that people can receive it, given that that is going to be time consuming. And everybody's you know, worried about labour costs, infection control and cleanliness. And can I have a sheet to tick a box and make sure that I've delegated my responsibility to the right person and covered my butt? And I'm like, I'm really concerned that we are not giving people the opportunity to be heard, to be seen, to receive information or engage in relationship in a way that they can make it meaningful. And health professionals are all about trying to make everything client-centred, client-centred, client-centred. Well, this is the heart of client-centred. <laughs> the heart of client-centred is, huh, why haven't you eaten your breakfast there, love? Because <laughs> you don't know what, yeah, what to do with it, yeah. Yeah, rather than just going, hey, your breakfast is getting cold, you better eat up. Yeah, no, that's very true. And I think, Joe, like with people who work in rehab and in private practice and that, you know, there's an element of isolation and working, you know, on your own. But I think that in aged care and working as a clinician in aged care, it's even more evident. And I must say that your resource, you know, the book of evidence has been really helpful in that regard just to go, oh, my God, I'm not a bad person. I'm actually okay. And here's this bit of, you know, feedback that I received, you know. And it's just, it's interesting that what you need to come up with when you work in aged care because you are on your own, you are isolated. Do a lot of clinicians that you mentor and supervise talk to you about isolation? Yeah, it, it's everywhere. So, and, and the, the, issue, the the funny thing is isolation comes from uh, a sense of not, it's not I don't have lots of people around me, it's people don't get me. So I, I know, you know, when, when I meet with occupational therapists who work with kids, they are always looking for other occupational therapists who work with kids. When you're looking for physiotherapists who work with athletes, they're always looking for other physiotherapists who work with athletes. I think one of the challenges that you face, Julie, is that you are such a pioneer in this space is that there's not many of you. There's not many of you who are willing to put your hand up and go, I really want to serve this part of our community with excellence and really well. And finding other like-minded people who are doing this in private practice, who are doing it as a passion project or who are doing it because they want to make a difference. I don't know many of you. And then we've got the other horrible thing that happens with health professionals is that we long for collaborative work, but then we judge ourselves and we get worried about comparing ourselves to each other and then it's I'm not good enough, that person won't want me, therefore that person won't want to go out with me. Or then we get competitive and we go, well, if I communicate with Julie, then Julie's going to steal all my work. So we're kind of our own worst enemies. 
Yeah, so true, so true. And, you know, um, the other thing that comes up, Joe, for me, like that's come up quite a few times, and, uh, you know, this is not something that I thought I would talk to you about, but I think it's important to also, you know, bring it up. It's the whole, you know, self-promotion and, you know, like I often share stories uh, about elderly because I think it's, it is important to advocate and to make people aware about what, what, what is going on in the aged care homes and, and wins and successes and, you know, and sad stories and, and just the combination of it all. But, you know, every now and then I get this message saying, oh, you know, you're a psychologist, you shouldn't be advertising or, you know, I had someone not long ago say something like, you know, I used to admire your work, but now I see you post on social media. So, you know, I don't give you credits for that. And it's like, well, mm, I'm not delivering clinical service. I am just making an awareness. And, I, you know, like, I don't know what it is that people have difficulty resonating with or, you know, what would give me, you know, discredit. But there seems to be this fear that, you know, APRA will get onto you or, you know, you're not doing the right. It's like, I'm not breaching anything, yet it comes up. It doesn't sit well with some people. It doesn't. And it really interesting. Health professionals, as what we're taught, all of us are taught, do no harm. All of us are taught how to be risk managers. From day dot, we are treating people who are incredibly vulnerable. We are working with people that if we make a wrong decision, things could go bad, right? So we are always coming from this framework of looking for the dangers and looking for the things that could go wrong, right? And some people take that to the nth degree, like you're just describing here. We cannot ignore the power of social media in how people communicate these days. So when 11 years ago, when I started my own private practice, I, I wasn't very adept at, at the whole social media thing, which most people find hilarious because I turn up all the time. But essentially, in 11 years, Facebook has now become a PR machine. It's not a place to connect. It is your business PR. And if we as health professionals don't stand up and go, this is what we do, this is how we serve, this is who we serve, then no one will know we are around. So if you think about how you make a buying decision these days, most of us will go to Facebook and go type in what we're looking for or YouTube or we'll ask our friends. Nobody will ever go to the Australian Psychological Association or society and type in psychologist or aged care in Sydney. Yeah, no, that's so true. So I get cranky on your behalf about this because it, it, it actually came up again yesterday uh, with, with somebody else. And I went, let's just go back to the APRA guidelines. Now I know that right at this point in time where there's been no active lit litigation in this country where we've had findings brought down to actually create law. It's just APRA have said these are the guidelines. They were written in 2014. So I hope this is not too harsh for this podcast. If you've got an issue with a health professional using social media to advocate for good care, good quality care, how we take what we do to people who need to know what we do, then I'm sorry. You've got some work to do on yourself. Because we can't ignore it. It's like when my son was in high school, he was in junior high, they had a horrible thing go through the high school and the police came in and at two 15-year-olds, so this was five years ago, 15-year-olds and said, well, as parents, you should just stop them all using social media. Like, ain't going to happen. 
So, Julie, my, my encouragement to you is you make sure you know those APRA guidelines inside out and upside down. Keep doing what you're doing because we need more of you. We need you to be building a movement where other private practitioners will go, we can provide better quality services. We can improve the lives of our valuable but vulnerable people and we will then be able to force these bigger organisations, these residential communities, to provide better quality services. It's got to come from the bottom up. It will not come from the top down. Top down is all about do we have enough money, which the answer is never yes. Uh, do we have enough people resources? The answer is never yes. So if we don't push for reallocation of those things from the bottom up, nobody's going to do it. Yeah, that's so true. It's interesting because this particular person, you know, was contacting me saying, hey, can you send me some more information about stuff? And then once I did, it was like, hey, don't email me. And it's like, well, you, <laughs> you went to my website and you inquired. I, it's not like I looked you up and I'm like, here you go. I'm going to send you this, you know. But yeah, it can be quite, you know, um, disheartening. And especially when you work in isolation and you work on your own and, and all that. But you know, I just keep on going back to why I do it, my why, and it is to improve the quality of lives of our elderly. And this leads me to the next question. I remember, you know, some time ago when I spoke to you about the prevalence of mental illness in residential care and how surprised you were about some of those figures. Do you remember that? I do. My takeaway from that conversation, I could quote you in my head so many times, but one of the statements you said to me was, depression is not a normal part of ageing. And I went, wait, what? Because I could not remember an older person who would not have met the criteria for major depression. So, like, dementia is not a normal ageing process. Depression is not a normal ageing process. Now, number one, that gave me hope. It was like, oh, I don't to look forward to that. But number two, I went, well, why the hell do we expect every old person to have memory loss? Why do we expect every old person to just be grumpy and, and upset all the time? Like, that's not okay. So what do you think we need to do about that? Like, is that just that the media is picking up certain topics? Well, the, the media wants to talk about how bad everything is. So they, the, uh, my impression of the media is they only want to talk about residential care when they have lots of problems and people are dying and it's big media frenzy, right? But we see that across our news all the time. So that, that's kind of the news that sells these days. But that's not the news people are looking for, which again brings me back to if we're not publicly talking about this in a forum that people can digest, such as social media or a podcast, then where else are people going to learn about it? So I, I think it needs to more activism, for, for want of a better word, with influences in the marketplace. I know Hammond Care did a great conference this year. I'm not promoting them. I'm just saying they did a great conference this year. But they, they really wanted to talk about whether or not dementia was something that was necessary. Like, is this a necessary part of your ageing? Well, it, yeah. So I think the same thing can be said about depression or anxiety or PTSD or whatever else is turning up in nursing homes. This is not normal. We don't just have to give you another pill and say, suck it up, princess. Here's a cup of lukewarm tea or worst case scenario, Nest Cafe. Sorry, how is it that nursing homes are still allowed to call out coffee? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was like pretty snobbish about my coffee, but really? Seriously? 
Yeah, yeah, no, and you know, there's plenty of people like your grandmother who would just nod and take it, and then family will come and say, "Hey, mum's never had coffee in her life. You know, why are you giving her coffee? She's a tea drinker." And they're like, "Well, no, she just smiled and said yes." But did she understand what you were giving her? Did she hear you? You know, yeah, I, you know, recently spoke to someone who works at Cochlear, and it's just like. How can people be expected to remember things in old age if they can't hear things properly, you know, in the first place? So there's just so much to unpack when it comes to old age and the assumptions and, you know, like we just think that everyone just goes deaf, they get demented, they get depressed, and it's like, no, that's not what happens. So and you know what's interesting is if we had a client come through our rooms uh, who was 35 who was experiencing hearing loss memory difficulties, mobility problems, and depression, we would go, cool, we know what to do with that. I can help this person become a fully functioning member of the community. I can help this person make transport work, go to work, have a fulfilling career, manage their family, have a fulfilling family life, and set themselves up financially. So why are we not having that conversation with somebody who now gets to live in residential care? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. It's just it's, <laughs> we're not there yet. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I just, just found my soapbox angry bit. It's like hearing, oh, man, we can do so much with hearing loss. But the answer is not wear a mask all the time so people can't lip read you, just putting that out there. Okay. So let's just go back to Gwen, your great aunt, and she passed away. How long has it been now? 2017, she passed away. 2017. And so those memories of her still stay with you and um, you think of the positive times that you've had with her rather than, you know, her last days in... in oh, yeah. Yeah, very, very, very much so. She was a big part of my childhood, really big part of my childhood. Well, my grandmother and her were so close, so that was bound to happen. But she was a very stabilising, constant, consistent person across my life until she died. It's like... She always, she came up in family conversations. She was included in family conversations and she didn't push herself into all of that. It was just expected that Gwenny would be around. So for me, you know, I'm, I'm 48. I've, I've known her for a really long time and there's a significant gap that she's not around. And I remember her fondly. I, I don't break into tears and, you know, I'm not, the, the grief has kind of settled down here. I feel like she had the opportunity to live a life that she was proud of. She loved her family and loved the relationships and loved people. She was musical. It's, it's, she never gave me the impression that she missed out on anything. And the way she loved people but held them to account in terms of being a nice person and a kind person and, and the way she would always, you know, she'd, she'd be able to say things like, yeah, living with my husband was at times hard, but we were able to do this and have this and do this another way. I admire that and I want to have some of those qualities in my own life as well. I was going to just say, like, do you aspire to be like Gwen in, in your late life? You know, if for whatever reason you end up <laughs> in a nursing home in late life, you'll make it very difficult for those coffee attendants, I think. Oh, my God. <laughs> Julie, health professionals at the moment don't enjoy talking to me. <laughs> and the ones, ones I receiving treatment from. So for your listeners, I'm being treated for breast cancer and that's been ongoing about six months now and it's okay we're talking you know survival here we're not talking management of a condition but the questions that I ask and the fact that I make everybody slow down it's like you are not talking to me while you're doing three other things 
right now I have to be the most important person in front of you, otherwise I don't get to. And I got burned through some surgeons because of that attitude. So I know this is about me and how I manage the rest of my life. This is not about your expediency. So, yes, if I ever get to live in an alternative accommodation to living on my own in my own home, uh, look out because I will want to relate to you. I expect you to say hello to me every day. I expect to be treated with respect and dignity. Uh, there will be no toileting of Joe until it's absolutely impossible for her to do that on her own. And uh, I will be asking for an OT every probably week just purely because there's no reason why some of this self-care, personal care, can't be done. Like, why can't I teach my grandmother how to eat again? Like, I'm pretty sure that somebody could sit down and help her understand how to do that herself. Absolutely, rather than just to, yeah, feed her. Well, thank you, Joe, for putting time aside. I think it might, it's quite admirable that even, you know, though you're going through challenges and you're going through cancer treatment, that you still are able to do these interviews and do bits and pieces. It's, it's really quite admirable. Your time management is impressive. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, what's important for me, Julie, is uh, if I sat around and did nothing and was not engaged in the world outside of my cancer diagnosis, I would probably need treatment for major depression. So being actively engaged in work or activities that are fulfilling for me has been a big part of my recovery. And so I think that's probably a big part of anyone's recovery, if we're honest. <laughs> Perfect. And if any health professionals want to connect with you, I'll certainly share your details where they can find you. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure, Julie. Thank you. Well, that is another episode of The Voice of Aged Care Done and Dusted. Be sure to become a subscriber on your podcast app of choice so that you don't miss out when I release the next episode. I'd love to know what you're thinking of this podcast and what you'd like to hear in the future. So please leave a rating and review too. Over on my website, wisecare.com.au, with one click, you can grab a copy of my three top downloaded resources on mental health and well-being in older age. Let's face it, this can be a complex topic and I want to give you practical strategies to deal with it. Go to wisecare.com.au for your free copy of these three amazing resources. See you in the next episode.